Our Father, we're grateful to you that each day we enjoy new strength in Jesus Christ. Not only strength physically, but strength in, in our spirits. We are renewed every day in our spiritual lives, and we're so grateful for the Spirit of God who brings about that renewal. Lord, we ask you to direct our thoughts this morning as we study further in the book of Genesis. Grant to us insight. This is your word, and it is your spirit who interprets it to us. So we ask, Lord, that we might have ears to hear what you are saying, and that we will not only be listeners and hearers, but doers of the word, applying it in every area of our lives, that those around us might see that we truly are the children of God. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to freely worship this day and to join fellowship with one another in the house of God. And we ask, Lord, that you might focus us now in these minutes ahead. In Christ's name, amen. In, I guess it was July, we studied the first few verses of the 11th chapter of Genesis verses 1 through 9, which deal with the Tower of Babel incident and the events that surround that. This is one of the key pieces of biblical history in all of Scripture. It gives us more understanding of the background of the human race than most other passages of Scripture do. It's a very, very important passage because in it we see I believe, the beginning of the divergence of the human race. I think I mentioned uh, recently that there is what is known as the polyphyletic school of human evolution, uh, whereby uh, supposedly mankind evolved through several parallel lines and, and became one race, which is absurd. What you have here is, is not that situation, but a, a divergence from a common line. And the divergence, of course, begins, as we are specifically told in this passage, geographically and linguistically. God confuses the languages, and as a result, the people scatter. So you have the birth of the languages, major language groups of the world, and then you have also the cause of the scattering of the human race. But I think logically derived from this passage is also the root of the divergence of the ethnic differences of the human race, the cultural differences of the human race, and even the racial differences of the human race. There are those who want to believe that you see in the three sons of Noah the three races of three major races of mankind, and I'm not saying that's impossible, but it's highly unlikely. But it's very likely to have begun as the various branches, uh, linguistic branches, separated from one another and became scattered across the earth. And as they became isolated one from the other, whatever was in that particular gene pool would be constantly reinforced by intramarriage within the group and causing that factor to become, those factors to become dominant within the group. It's sort of like you've all uh, seen the pictures, I suppose, of the Habsburg lip. The Habsburg dynasty that ruled in Eastern Europe, the uh, Austria specifically, and the Holy Roman Empire for much of time, 
there's a, a whole, you see a whole uh, uh, lineage of particularly young men, but not only young men, who became rulers within the Hapsburg Empire, and they all had this kind of a pouting lip. They all looked like they were pouting all the time. And that was because of the constant inbreeding of that particular dynasty. I mean, they were always marrying close within the dynasty to avoid pollution of the dynasty, and as a result, you keep reinforcing these kinds of traits. And so they become characteristic. And I believe that uh, what you have here as the human race is scattered is the reinforcement of certain characteristics which then result in the ethnic and ultimately the racial differences of mankind. Seems logical anyway. Uh, any other way of looking at it doesn't seem to have any support, either biblically or actually as you study scientifically the, the development of the human race. Mankind became brutalized. Instead of cavemen preceding the later evolution of man, you actually have cavemen resulting from this. As, as people scattered and they, they entered more hostile environments, they ended up living in caves. I mean, we have cavemen today. So what's the big deal about that? <coughs> and, and we know that they, they are able to determine that if you were to take a child from any tribe in the world today, the most primitive tribe, and bring that child up with a modern education, that child is just as bright as anybody from any other culture in the world today, on the average. So living in a primitive condition isn't the result of a lower mental capacity. It's the result of isolation. It's the result of brutalization. And you, you see the skulls, which are supposed to represent uh, pre-modern man in terms of the features of the heavy brow and, and the wide jowls and the deep and the crest down the top of the head. But it's been shown that all you have to do is take a baby and feed it a certain kind of diet, and you can develop a skull like that today in a modern person. If you feed people really tough stuff that they got to chew and chew and chew, it will start to develop a ridge crest down the top of the head and heavy jowls, and you can end up with a Neanderthal, in effect, today. So you don't have, as you dig up these kinds of remains, a history of the evolution of mankind. You just simply see the uh, geographic differences, the isolation factors, the brutalization, the devolution of the human race. And I think that this all can be at least logically derived from the events which transpire here in the 11th chapter of Genesis. Now, specifically as we came to the end uh, two weeks ago of this passage, the account describes the inadequate pride, or not the inadequate, the inordinate pride of the human race that led to folly. Remember it says, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Let us build a city for ourselves and a tower whose top will reach unto heaven or whose top will be heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We want to be great. As Nebuchadnezzar stood, on the roof of his palace, hundreds and hundreds of years later, 
and he looked around at the glorious city of Babylon, he uttered these words, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? It's the same kind of pride here, in the same place. Now, you know, pri uh, Babylon is not necessarily the geographic locus of pride in the human race, but it seems to be a place at which that pride has often been overtly manifested. We all struggle with the same issue, though, obviously, within our, within our own beings. The people building this tower were convinced that they could become the masters of their own destiny. And do you see this today or what? You ever watch these shows where you have... Uh, a host, and, and they're talking to various people, and they're, they're talking about their careers and everything. And, and, and these people are, in effect, saying, we have become the masters of our own destiny. We have created this great image uh, because of our ability and our commitment and our skill and whatever it happens to be. These individuals thought that they could be gods. You know, little g, but that's okay. Huh, I'll take being a little g god, many would say. They didn't want, of course, necessarily rival the great gods. You read Greek mythology, and what you have is really gods who are simply superhuman in many ways, subhuman in many ways in their activities. But um, the possibility within Greco-Roman uh, mythology for human beings to actually be catapulted to divinity. And this has been the desire of mankind. Now, where did it come from? Well, obviously, this was the temptation that, that Satan gave to Eve in the garden, wasn't it? Oh, you shall be like God, and that's what God's afraid of, and that's why he didn't tell you everything, and I'm telling you everything now, because you can be like God. Now, where did he get that? Well, that was his dream. And, of course, we read the passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah, which basically teach that Satan wanted to exalt himself to be on high alongside the Almighty. And so it was with these people. This is the lie, the great lie. Unfortunately, the great lie has not died out. And we have not learned from the Tower of Babel or the other incidents of history that to arrogate ourselves to deity leads to great disaster. Today, it rear, uh, this, this pride rears its head in many forms. It rears its head, for example, in philosophies. We have philosophies that are important in the world today, the New Age philosophy, which manifests itself in many forms. But the idea of reincarnation, now the idea of reincarnation is not new. I mean, it can be traced clear back into the uh, Vedic literature uh, of ancient Hindu religion, and uh, that's really New Age religion or philosophy is, is not really much more than a, than a modified form of Hinduism. It's not new thought at all. It's old thought. It's old age religion, really. But the idea that there are ascended masters and that we can achieve a greater level of intelligence, that we can kind of find the lines of convergence and, and we can get fixed in to the, to, to the great law of the universe. I mean, this is the great lie. A kind of a personalization of nirvana or something along that line. We find this also in secular humanism, which is talked about so much today in Christian circles. Humanism is one thing. Secular humanism is another. 
Uh, early humanism was not necessarily secular. Early humanists tended to acknowledge God. But modern humanists, many of them anyway, tend to write God right out of the script. And, and instead they go back to the ancient Greek teaching that man is the measure. Man is the measure of all things. This is really the secular humanist's ultimate credo. And we can measure everything by ourselves. And it becomes to the point where it's individualized. And we can measure all, everything by our own individual self. And that, of course, leads to the kind of amorality that we have today. Uh, it's whatever I feel like, that's okay. Whatever I do, that's okay. Everything is individualized and there's no rule for the group. There's no absolute standard to go by. And of course, many really joke about the Bible as being kind of archaic and, and fundamental Christians as, as living in the Middle Ages or something. Because these individuals are, are striving for their own personal godhood through secular humanism. And of course, it manifests itself in, in teachings uh, you know, like EST, I forget what they call it today, but started out as EST, was simply a kind of a, uh, well, it's kind of a new age, uh, secular humanism, everything all mixed together. And then, of course, you have the religious heresies that are cropping up like, uh, you know, like mushrooms in a wet lawn. Every time you turn around, there's a new heresy popping up someplace. Uh, Satan loves us to believe the almost truth. <laughs> he wants us to, you know, it's like if you've talked to the, the heretics that come to your door. Yes, they believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in God the Father. They believe in the Spirit, as long as you don't personalize him. And as long as you don't try to make Jesus equal with the Father. I mean, they believe in all these things. And they can sign a statement of faith that sounds pretty much or very close to the statement of faith that we believe in. But, but they simply translate or, or, or define the terms differently than we do. Paul, in his teaching to Timothy, made a point about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We have a very uh, often... Uh, repeated passage, and it needs to be often repeated. 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, and it's here right now, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Some people play church smorgasbord. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of like revolving door churches, and, and people are in and out, in and out, churches all over the place, because they're looking for something that will suit what they want. Rather than finding where God's Word is preached and where the truth is proclaimed, they want to go where they're going to feel good. Well, in the presence of God, we're not always going to feel good. 
because God is perfect. And the scripture says our God is a consuming fire. And, and God is not a warm fuzzy. You know, these songs where we, we kind of get the feeling like we could just kind of sling our arm around Jesus' sh shoulder and walk down the road having a happy time. Well, it just doesn't fit the way life is most of the time. Jesus is Lord and Master, King of Kings, Almighty God. We cheapen him when we make him a buddy. Not that he isn't our friend. The scripture teaches that he's closer to us than a friend. But he's our God. And, and we can feel good in his presence in the sense that we are desiring to know him and to walk with him. But at the same time, there is great concern in his presence. We should be deeply humbled in his presence. Remember when the fire came down and when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, it was so bright the people couldn't even look at it, let alone enter it. And Moses, communing with God on the top of the mountain, came down. His face was glowing with the, with the light of the presence of God. You can believe Moses came down off that mountain with a, with a mind that had been well conformed to the thoughts of God. But notice how quickly his thoughts and actions became somewhat disconformed. <laughs> That's the human condition. And it doesn't leave room for arrogance how great we are, because we are not great by any stretch of the imagination. So heresy comes along and tries to tickle our fancy and say, hey, you know, as long as you acknowledge God, everything's okay. And let's go someplace where they give us pious platitudes and where they talk about how terrible the presidential candidates are rather than talking about what the Word of God says. And then, of course, there are attitudes that stem from this, too. The attitude of apathy. Eh, eh, I don't care. You know, whatever. It's all right. I'm okay. You know, just kind of a, a cruise through life on a calm sea. Well, most of us have noticed that the sea isn't very calm very often, is it? Not that we shouldn't find a calm in the Lord. But if we're just trying to practice stoicism, that's, that's completely different. Complacency is another attitude that often hits the Christian church. We become complacent. We're doing it just fine, thank you. Everything's going just fine, thank you. Uh, we're doing everything just perfectly, thank you. Not likely. We are always in need of God's touch to improve us individually and corporately, and we always need to be striving for, as Paul said, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that's not a horizontal line. That's a climbing line. We cannot be complacent. And, of course, materialism. There's not a one of us here in this room today who isn't impacted by materialism. And, 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 of course, that's the desire to satisfy our flesh above everything else and to always be searching for that which satisfies the flesh. But we need to go beyond satisfying the flesh. It's not that we don't do that. We should be properly clothed and we should be properly fed and we should be properly housed, whatever properly is. It's different in, in, in various people's minds. You know, you read the newspaper that says there are two million more in poverty now in the United States. Well, what happened? Did suddenly 
two million people just lose everything and fall into poverty. No, they keep raising the poverty line. And now the poverty line becomes, you know, I don't know what it is today, $16,000 annual income. If you have a couple of kids, you're below that, you're poverty. Well, a lot of people I know are in poverty then, if that's the case. And yet, poverty in our country doesn't begin to compare with poverty in many places in the world. I mean, you go to Bangladesh, the average annual income in Bangladesh is less than $300. Now, how far would we get in our society in $300 in a year? Not real far. In their societies, of course, they can go a little bit further because there's more barter and, and they don't need to spy in a house as we have, and, and a lot of things are different. But, I mean, this is real poverty. Our daughter Karen spent a year teaching in Haiti. There's a lot of real poverty in Haiti. Cheryl and Mike went down to Haiti, and they witnessed some of it. It's uh, not alone, of course. But we, as Christians, what, what is the book? Um, Rich Christians in an Age of Poverty or something like that's the title uh, of a book. I've forgotten the exact title, but uh, that's been a, a bestseller for a while. And, um, you know, this, this is an attitude that can afflict us too, and it's from the pit, as all of these other attitudes and philosophies are. It's all a part of Satan's trap. One way or another... We're tempted to believe, however, that everything's going to turn out all right. After all, all dogs go to heaven, right? All people go to heaven, too. I mean, what kind of a God would there be who would send anybody to hell? Well, you know, that's a great thought. And many people who think that thought think that they are really uh, more advanced human beings. They've evolved to a higher level. But it just doesn't happen to be the teaching of the Word of God. And God is omniscient. And we are not. And neither is Bertrand Russell or, you know, any of the other great names who have basically thumbed their nose at the Almighty. Can we captain our own ship? You know, you read, I've, I've enjoyed, when, especially when I was a young person, I enjoyed reading books about the age of sail, sailing ships, especially warships. I was into warships. <laughs> And uh, I read all of the Hornblower series. Those of you who were, who were young men at one time probably knew something about that series. But <clears throat> you think about all of the, the, the potentials for disaster for a sailing ship out there on the sea. And for us to then make that comparison in our own lives, I mean, is it dangerous or what to try to captain our own ship? Yeah, I think so. But many feel that that's what they can do. Science, after all, is going to solve all mankind's problems, right? And the universe will be ours. I mean, a la Star Trek or something. We'll be able to hop in a machine and we'll be on the other side of the galaxy. And you know, the other people over there look a little bit funny sometimes compared to us. But nevertheless, they're highly intelligent too, right? Well, dream on. Let me read from Psalm... 33. Psalm 33, beginning at verse 10. I mean, this brings it back down to where it really is. All of our dreams and all of our aspirations to, to, to run our lives without any acknowledgement of the Most High runs aground on the greatest reef of all, the reef of His truth. Psalm 33, 10. 
The Lord nullifies the counsel of nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let the lo thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in thee. If we don't have our hope in him, we are shipwrecked. And all you have to do is, you know, really, if you could, interview people whose lives have been lived entirely for themselves with no place for God in, interview them on their deathbed if that was possible, and see how firm they are in their knowledge that all is going to be okay as they pass from this life. They generally, if they're wise, probably they weren't wise if they got in that condition, but uh, if they're fearful anyway, they will admit they don't know. They really don't know. Nikolai Lenin said that religion is the opiate of the people. What he called the opiate is the truth with a capital T. He was totally deceived by the serpent. That man, for all of his brilliance, I mean, he was a, he, he was a very brilliant man, a self-taught lawyer who was able to lead a great revolution as a young man and, and to create a monolithic nation out of one of the most impossible nations to control. I mean, just study Russian history sometime and, and read about all those peoples that were collected in under the various Russian czars and you will find a very, very unwieldy situation. And yet he pulled it together, oh, not perfectly, and there were many who were opposed to him, and, but nevertheless, he pulled it together. And yet, in spite of all of his strength and brilliance, he was totally deceived. And he was not without having had an opportunity, however, because when he was young, he had actually learned big, great passages of Scripture. But it had not gone beyond here into his being and he was not transformed. So we move now from this account of what I believe is the source of the diversification of the human race into what we see ultimately today to God's focus on one man and truly one of the greatest men of all history. Let's read beginning uh, with Genesis chapter 11 verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. 
Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. And Arpachshad lived 35 years, and he became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. And Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarag. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarag, and he had other sons and daughters. And Sarag lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarag lived 200 years, and he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Aren't you thankful for Abraham? Otherwise, who knows how long we'd be going there <laughs> with this list. Now, the great flood had purged the world of millions of godless people. In one fell swoop, God had blotted out all of mankind save eight people. But guess what? The infection of sin survived the flood because it was in those eight people. It's sort of like the doctor who goes in to remove the cancer, but he doesn't get all the cells. The cancer will probably return. And so it was with the human race. And when you go back to the ninth chapter of Genesis, the 20th verse, which talks about Noah going out and, and planting a vineyard, getting drunk and, and laying, lying out naked in his tent, from there all the way through the passage we just finished in the ninth verse of the 11th chapter, you have there the story of the increasing impact of sin. Sin is on the rise again. From having reached this, this great peak, God had crushed it and brought it down to just eight, but now it's rising again as the human race proliferates. So behind the words of Moses, we, we can hear this great crescendo of godlessness that's leading to confusion and hopelessness for the human race. And it has, of course, continued until today, and we live in one of the most hopeless ages of ever. But just watch the news one evening, and if you don't feel depressed, there's something wrong with you. Well, hopefully our trust is in the Lord and maybe won't feel depressed. But as you, you listen to that, I mean, every once in a while they stick in a, good, a piece of good news, and it's usually some inane thing that really you know, some guy rescued his dog or something, you know. I've got nothing against dogs. But it seems that the good news is some teeny little sliver here and the bad news is, you know, all over the place, just oozing out of every corner. You know, air, air, you, at night, I don't know how it affects you, but I, if I watch the bombardment of Sarajevo and you see these, these things coming and exploding in the middle of the city, it just gives you the chills. And to think that they say, this may go on for years. Oh, good, you know. I mean, hopelessness. How hopeless can these people feel? 
The international community can't or won't solve their problem. And they certainly can't solve it themselves. I mean, the Serbs have hated the Bosnians, who have hated the Croatians, who have hated the Montenegrins, who have hated the Macedonians. I mean, they've hated each other for eons, and they're not going to change overnight. And you throw in the midst of it Catholics and, 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 and Greek Orthodox and Muslims and, and various other isms and asms, and, and you've got a cauldron. And that's just one place. And you look at our country, and, and I mean, the total disarray that, uh, that I see at least as I watch the news of this country. Here it is. Here's, here's where that really began again. And we're watching it explode here in these chapters of Genesis. And yet for us there need not be hopelessness because out of that milieu God would preserve a faithful lineage. God would call out a man who would father a nation through which would come the Messiah, the Savior. And that, of course, is really one of the main themes, if not the main theme of the Old Testament. It's not just to, to teach us of the love and the mercy of God, which it surely does, but the scarlet thread of salvation runs through there to the Messiah. It's sort of like the Old Testament gives birth to the New Testament in Jesus Christ. There was a Seth who eventually, whose, from whose seed would eventually be, uh, arise a Noah. From a Seth, there would come a Noah. And now we have here a Shem, from whose seed would arise an Abraham. So as from Seth came Noah, from Shem came Abraham. God always preserved his line. And God raised up his man of the hour. In the 10th chapter of Genesis, as we studied that, we saw a partial genealogy of this man Shem. But in this passage, we're going to look at a, well, we just read a fuller genealogy of one of Shem's sons, and that is Arpachshad. Now, we, we know from that 10th chapter, the 22nd verse, that Shem had five sons. Arpachshad was just one of them. He also had Elam and Asher and Lud and Aram, five sons. And from all five of these sons, a great nation would arise. But God is not concerned primarily with the nation that would arise from Asher or from Lud, or from Aram, or from Elam, although these nations are mentioned and are important in biblical history. But God is primarily concerned with the family that would arise, the nation that would arise from Arpachshad, or at least from one line of Arpachshad. This, of course, becomes the story of that line as you trace through the whole Old Testament. Now, it's, it's possible that Arpachshad was born two years after the flood and was the third son. And the only reason I make that comment at all is in the 10th chapter, the 22nd verse, it says the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Now, quite often, Scripture gives the children in birth order, but not necessarily always. 
And so if Arpachshad was to be the third son, it's, it's not impossible for that to have happened because it says he was born two years after the flood. Let's say that um, his mother was pregnant with Elam on the boat, on the ark. And shortly after leaving the ark, Elam was born. A year later, she was pregnant again, and Asher was born, and a year later, Arpachshad. So it's at least physically possible for him to have been the third son born in only two years. But Calvin said, Moses is not concerned about birth order here. He just simply has listed them, and it should be noted, in Calvin's opinion, that Arpachshad was the oldest son. Well, that cannot be proven one way or the other uh, from the passage. But one thing that is, seems to be clear here was that Shem was 97 when he climbed on the ark, for all the value that that piece of information has for us. There are two interesting things to note here about this genealogy. As we read through it, did you notice that in almost every case it said that the man was 30-some-odd years old when his son was born, and that he was 30-some-odd years old when his son was born, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30. And yet these guys lived to be, what, some cases 400 and something, 200 and something, and yet almost in every case they were 30-something. Sounds like a great name for a program. Anyway, I've never seen it by here. There is one like that. That, that seems to have been the, the point at which uh, they felt it was important to, to have, a, have a child. <laughs> I don't know. If we were to relate that to our situation today, if you have your first son when you're 30 and you live to be 450, <laughs> that'd be like us having our first son when we're five or something like that, you know, biologically impossible, of course, but in terms of your lifespan, a portion of your lifespan. More important, though, than that, is the clear indication here of the rapid decline in longevity of the human race as the generations passed from Noah down to Nahor and his family. Notice that, if you will. Noah lived to be 950 years old. Now, right away you find a major drop, though, between Noah and Shem. Shem dies at 600. Boy, what a short life, huh? But it is compared to 950. I mean, that's three and a half centuries less. And certainly the flood impacted that, uh, that is the conditions that resulted from the flood had a great impact. But if you go on, you'll notice between Shem and Eber, it drops from 600 to 464, and then from father to son, from Eber to Peleg, it drops from 464 to 239. I mean, the son lived only half as long as the father. And so what you're seeing is a precipitous decline in human longevity here in the generations right after the great flood of Noah. I mean, to say that that flood was not worldwide and it didn't impact the entire world in ways far beyond just wiping out the human race in, in the water is to be blind to what it's telling us here. Now Terah, who's the father of Abraham, would live to be 205 and, and as far as we can tell in Scripture, he was the last person that there's record of to break two centuries. 
After that, everyone fell under two centuries. Abraham would live to be 175. Isaac, I think, would live to be 180. Jacob, 140-something or other. But then you come down to Joseph, and Joseph lives a mere 110 years. <laughs> Notice as you, as you compare those and you look at all that, 110 seems so short. But of course, compared to the way we live, that seems like, whoa, boy, you know, that's a long life. But in about 600 years, or a little over half a millennia, human lifespan has dropped 90% from almost a millennium to approximately a century. I mean, that is a precipitous decline, and it needs to be noted. Now, Moses himself, who would come many generations later, would live to be 120. But he would give to us a prophecy concerning the human lifespan. And it's one we've often read in Psalm 90. The 90th Psalm is the Psalm of Moses. And in the 90th Psalm, verses 10 to 12, we read about our lifespan. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Moses gives that rather disturbing prophecy that human life will be pretty well capped at 70 to 80 years, not for every single individual, obviously, because Moses himself lived to be 120. But you'll notice that after giving that rather disturbing prophecy, he ends it with a very upbeat note in the 12th verse where he says, so teach us to number, our days are few, so number them. Teach us to count each one. That doesn't mean cross it off in a calendar or write it on the wall. It means to make each day count. Use it wisely that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom, not a heart of folly, not a heart that chased after the things of this world which are going to all burn up. Every once in a while, Lois and I make the comment that, well, it's all going to burn anyway. <laughs> you know, what's the use of accruing this stuff? Sometimes you look at your garage and you say, oh, yes, why? <laughs> you know, maybe you don't, but we do. Of course, we have collected some of our kids' stuff, not, not, not these kids over here, but <laughs> kids who have moved far away, <laughs> we have some of their stuff. They, they have their own stuff in their own garage <laughs> here. But uh, our, our focus needs to be on wisdom, on the things that count for God, whether we live, whether we live uh, as Jim Elliot did, just a short life. But, but he, you know, made it clear that, that if a life is, is given over to God, what difference does it make how long it is? Because eternity is forever. So lifespan has drastically changed. Now why? Why did human lifespan drop? What happened? Well, certainly what happened was related somehow to the great flood because it is the actual point at which you see the change happen. And I think that although, sure, you can say God ordained it. Sure, God ordained it. 
but he used processes to bring it about. Now, if we go back to our concept of what the world probably was like before the flood, and the world was surrounded by a great water vapor canopy, that is, there was a whole lot more water vapor up there than there is now, and thus the atmosphere was heavier and thicker, and cosmic radiation and all of those things out there which are so dangerous were blocked, primarily, and, and, and the human body was able to, to continue to regenerate itself without constantly being bombarded and destroyed. I think I mentioned this to you once before, but we get the University of California uh, wellness letter, and they had an article once. It was about sunbathing, and uh, the article said, how many people would go out and bask in the glow of a nuclear reactor? Find a nuclear reactor to just kind of lie out in the shadow of the thing, you know, and hope that you're getting radiated. So, but that's what people do when they lay out in the sun. And that vast nuclear reactor that makes all those on the earth look like puny little things in comparison, you're just letting it bombard you. <laughs> that was not from a Christian book. That's from this wellness letter. The sun is not our friend. Oh, we need it. Definitely we need it. But individually, it and cosmic radiation is constantly bombarding us and aging us and tearing us down and, and striking our DNA and modifying it and causing changes in heredity. The collapse of the water vapor canopy ripped away that great shield. We talked today about our concern about the ozone layer and the thinning of the ozone layer, which is allowing more radiation to penetrate. Well, this is far greater than the ozone layer. In, in its importance to pre-flood conditions. And so these, this increased radiation allowed rapid destructive genetic modifications and, I believe, mutations. As I mentioned once before, mutation is not a dirty word. Mutation is a perfectly good word, and mutation happens. But you don't have to interpret it as being a positive thing causing things to evolve, evolve because there's no proof of that whatsoever. It's like recently there was an article in the uh, ICR newsletter saying that some scientists said that they have proven evolution in the, in the laboratory. They have taken certain, I uh, forgot what it was, some kind of a bacteria, I think, and uh, they have caught, forced it to evolve. And it has changed to a different creature than it was before, and so they say we have proven evolution. But the author of the article says, you've proven creation because it didn't happen randomly. You engineered it. You made it happen. You as a human mind forced it. That doesn't prove evolution. That proves, if anything, creation. Mutation is a reality, but mutation is destructive. Not only were humans impacted directly, genetically, but also indirectly because this world became a more hostile place in which to live. Ever notice? It's true. Every once in a while we can take that lovely evening walk. The air is perfect. Somehow the mosquitoes have gone on vacation. And you're just having a really enjoyable evening. And sometimes the environment seems so wonderful. But is that an everyday occurrence? Is that true worldwide? Try taking a, a, a walk in the cool of the evening on the equator. There is a cool of the evening in the equator. It's very short. And it's not terribly cool, but it's alive. 
Everything is moving. We were uh, one time, we were sponsoring the senior class in the Alliance Academy in Quito. And we'd gone out for a senior trip into the jungle. And there was all this chaos in the middle of the night. And since we were the sponsors, <laughs> we had to figure out what. It was a dead, dark night, no moon in the jungle. So I got my little fl trusty flashlight out. I'm going to go find out what these kids are doing. Well, it was the guys, of course, over by the girls. It wasn't a dorm, but the place where the girls were sleeping, and they were setting up a terrible racket. But I can remember walking through that jungle night there, and with the flashlight off, all I could see were little spots of light. I thought, what's the matter with my eyes, you know? <laughs> they were fireflies, and they were all over the place, you know, these little spots of light flickering around you. Really strange. But the night is alive. The evening is alive. I don't know what that has to do with anything we're talking about here, but it's kind of interesting. <laughs> the environment being hostile, that's it. <clears throat> Not that fireflies are particularly dangerous, but uh, there are lots of other things that are dangerous out there in, uh, in this hostile world. The claw, the fang, the thorn multiplied. And even more so, hostile microorganisms, which are our primary enemy, it seems, multiplied dramatically. And climatic extremes, which didn't exist before. Extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme humidity, extreme aridity. These things didn't exist before. Suddenly, they're here. Well, not suddenly. They eventually came up. And, and human race became subject to super cold climates, super hot climates. All of these different changes, and, and although the human, ra human beings are probably more adaptable than almost any other creature to these different uh, climatic changes, except, of course, microorganisms. They seem to adapt to everything, for the most part, anyway. But uh, disease, all of these things uh, uh, participated together to bring about the rapid decline of human longevity. Mankind simply would not live as long as he lived before. And so at longevity would decline until in the Middle Ages, average lifespan was about 40. And what is interesting is today in many countries of the world, the average lifespan is still only about 40. In fact, if you were to have an, have an average lifespan of the entire population of the world today, all 5.4 billion human beings, the average lifespan would be less than 50. That's a far cry from 950 or even 600, is it not? Not that most of us would want to live 950 years. That would be like having been born in the 11th century about the time that the Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches broke from each other to precipitate this millennia of schism. Before the Crusades. Long before Columbus discovered America. Well, <clears throat> let's read the next few verses, and uh, we'll probably have to pick them up next week, but let's look at them. Genesis eleven twenty six. 26. <clears throat> And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren. I'm sure glad when they, her name was changed to Sarah. And she had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And, all, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There's a great deal of significant information in that little passage of Scripture. Information which is very important for us to understand what God did through Abram or Abraham. And for us to understand the world in which Abraham grew up. And the world in which we live, he lived. You know, what's interesting is we go through these children's Sunday school classes and we read the story of Abraham but unfortunately, many times, the young people who go through this don't have a feeling for what life was like in Abraham's day. And they just simply translate Abraham to their own day, our own day. And not that that's always bad, but we need to have a feel for what life was like. And why did Abraham leave Ur of the Chaldees? Were there any reasons besides simply the call of God, or did the call, was the call of God facilitated by some other things? You see, because you and I often feel God leading us to do something, but we don't always have God appearing before us in angelic form and saying, go to Ethiopia. You know, We often have to sense the call of God within the framework of events which transpire and, and, and people who advise us and other things. So how does this fit with Abraham? Well, we will look at that uh, next week.